I said it last week that uh, one of the things I love the most about this time of year is just the ability that we get to sing the songs like that. And one of the reasons I, I love those songs so much is because the lyrics to them are just so incredibly rich. And for those of you who, who pay attention to those lyrics, and if you know your Bibles, you know that many of those lyrics are just taken directly from the, the stories that we tell at this time of year and the pages of our Bible. And today, as we continue on our Light of the World series, we get the opportunity just to look at another really rich story surrounding the birth of Jesus. And so to prepare ourselves for what we're going to look at today, I, I want to read to you this story ahead of time and just have you listen. We'll have the words on the screen as well. Uh, but this is from Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. And this is what we read. It says, When the time for it came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he saw the Lord's Messiah. And moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Let's pray as we get ready for this message. Would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we thank you for this time of year, God. We thank you for just the uniqueness of it, Father, um, the openness that we see around us and people just to uh, hear about you and to celebrate a season that they don't even understand, God. And yet at the same time, Father, uh, there's something that, that they know they desperately need that's within it, and that is obviously we believe your son, Jesus. And so, Father, as we, as we look at this message here this week and this remarkable text of Scripture, God, I, I pray, Father, Um, that your Holy Spirit uh, would just speak through me, God. I pray that he would speak to the hearts of of all of us in this room, Father. And I pray that we would come away from this message here today with a real sense of your love for us, yes, but uh, even more than that, your love for those who are not a part of us and the responsibility that we have uh, to reach out to them. And so, Father, we, we give this time over to you and we ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles. Luke chapter 2 is where we are. That's where I just read, Luke chapter 2. And uh, as you find your place in Luke chapter 2, I have a question for you. And this is one of those questions that you answer to yourselves, okay? But the question is this. It was, when was a time you remember being really surprised on Christmas morning? When was a time you remember being really surprised on Christmas morning? This past week, I found myself uh, at my parents' house. Uh, we go over there a couple of nights a week for dinner as a family. And uh, when I was at my parents' house, we were, we were taking a look at some old photos uh, at, at my parents' house. And we were taking a look specifically at some old photos from Christmas morning, from years past. 
And there was one especially that, uh, that I looked at and I just loved and it stood out to me. So I actually brought it this weekend to share with all of you. So we'll go ahead and put this photo on the screen. This is a photo of me and my siblings on Christmas morning. This is probably about 33 years ago, 32 years ago, something like that. Can any of you guess in this particular photo who I am? Yes, it's pretty obvious, right? So let me introduce my family to you. That's my sister Amy rocking the awesome perm there. Uh, in this photo, she's about three or four years older than me. Actually, in every photo, she's about three or four years older than me. That doesn't change. Uh, in the middle there, you have my brother Brad. He's about five or six years older than me. And then in the awesome Batman PJs, you have a picture of me. And my mom thinks I'm probably about five years old in this photo, which is just crazy to me because that's actually younger than my son Lucas is right now, which is just insane to me. But this is a photo from Christmas morning. We're opening our stockings. As I said, this is probably 32 years ago or something like this. That. And as I was looking at this photo this past week, I was just remembering all the really great Christmases that I had as a kid. Um, you know, I, I know Christmas morning or Christmas wasn't great for all of you, and I, and I want to be sensitive to that. But in our family, my parents, my mom especially, she worked really hard just to make sure we had great Christmases, and they were always full of a lot of surprises and fun and that sort of thing. And, and actually, as I was looking at this photo, I was, I was thinking back to what is probably one of the most memorable Christmases I've ever had, and it's actually, honestly, one of the more recent ones. It's just from about 12 years ago. I was in my 20s. I was an adult at that time. And the reason why it's so memorable is it was really one of the last Christmases where I remember being surprised on Christmas morning. So let, let me tell you the, the story of this. So 12 years ago, uh, if you may remember, that the big gift that particular year was the Nintendo Wii video game system. Remember that with the funny controllers that you got to play tennis with and everything? And that was the hot gift. And you guys know me, I've told you before, I like video games. And so that is the gift that I wanted more than anything. The only problem was, since it was so popular, it was really, really hard to find. And so about a week and a half or so, or a month and a half before, so before Christmas, my mom came up to me and she said, Chris, what do you really want for Christmas? And I said, well, more than anything, I want the Wii. And she had heard of it before and she said, well, isn't that hard to find? And I said, yes, but if there's any way that you can find it, that's, that's what I would really like. Well, a couple of weeks later or so, uh, my mom came up to me again and she said, Chris, I've just been looking everywhere and it's just sold out everywhere. I just can't find it. So you, you need to tell me something else that you want for Christmas, otherwise you're not going to have anything to open on Christmas morning. So I was a little disappointed, but I understood, of course. And the only other thing that I could think of that I wanted was I was in seminary at that time. I was studying to be a pastor. And there was actually this commentary set of books on the Bible, this reference set of books on the Bible that I had my eye on. And so that's the only th other thing I could think of that I wanted. And just so you know, you guys, that describes me to a T, okay? So if you want to know who I am, the greatest gifts, in my opinion, are either video games or research books on the Bible, okay? That, that is 100% who I am. So I told my mom that that's what I wanted. And, you know, th this, is, this is where, and those of you who are older, you know this, this is just where Christmas changes when you're a little bit older, right? Because this was kind of a complicated request, and my mom wanted to make sure that she got the right one and not the wrong one. So literally, I was the one who went on the computer, and I went on eBay, and I picked out exactly the right set, and I was the one who, you know, put in my mom's credit card information and ordered it. Uh, when it came a couple of weeks later, my mom wanted to make sure that it was right, so I opened it up and made sure that all the books were there weeks before Christmas. 
And then, because it was a really heavy box of books, there was like 20 books in it, my mom couldn't move it anywhere. And so I had to move it into the garage where it had to wait until Christmas morning. Even though I knew what it was, I couldn't use it towards Christmas morning, even though I had a paper due that that would have really helped me on. But anyway, I moved it until Christmas morning. Now, the whole time I did all of this, I was still just kind of secretly hoping, maybe my mom's tricking me because she's done this before. You know, maybe she found the Nintendo Wii for me. Well, all, all hopes that I had were completely dashed on Christmas Eve, the night before Christmas, when I think right as I was about ready to go to bed or something like that, my mom said to me, she said, Chris, that box of books is still in the garage. It's, it's really heavy. Would you do me a favor? Before you go to bed tonight, would you move it in front of the tree so that you can have it to open tomorrow morning? So when I heard that, my heart just sort of sank, and I thought, okay, there, there's absolutely no way that I'm getting the Nintendo Wii tomorrow morning. So I did that, and I went to bed that night thinking, this is going to be the least surprising, most anticlimactic Christmas I've ever had before. Well, to make a long story just a little bit longer, uh, that next morning, woke up, Christmas morning, family came over, went into the living room, and sure enough, right in front of the tree was that same box that I had moved there the night before. It hadn't even been wrapped, okay? It was still unwrapped. And I'll be honest with you, uh, I, was, I was in my 20s, so I was still a little bit of a, a punk at that time. The Holy Spirit had not done all the work in me that he needed to. <laughs> so I was kind of in a grumpy mood, and so I, this is what I did, literally, literally what I did. So I went up to this box, and in a very kind of grumpy voice, I said this. I said, well, here's my box of books, and I, and I actually kicked the box. I kicked the box with my foot. Yeah. At that moment, my mom should have taken that present away from me, right? And sent me to my room. But I think I was too old for her to do that. So fortunately, she didn't. But when I kicked the box, something very unexpected happened. And that was this box actually just flew a few feet. It flew kind of halfway across the room. And the box that I had moved there the night before should not have done that because it was really heavy and it shouldn't even budge an inch from the kick that I gave it. But all of a sudden, over the course of the night, this box got a whole lot lighter, you know? And so I'm all excited. And so I run up to this box, I get down on my knees, I open it up, I look inside, and what do you think is in this box? Yeah, a little baby kitten I had just kicked halfway across the room. No, I'm just kidding. No, the Nintendo Wii was in it. No, no, no. It was kind of a boring story, so I had to dress it up a little bit. No, of course, my mom got me the Nintendo Wii. She actually even got it before me before I asked, and she knew that's what I wanted, and so she surprised me. Now, doesn't my mom deserve a round of applause for that? Yeah, she did a good job. And so that was really, that's one of the most memorable Christmases, because one of the last ones I really remember being genuinely surprised. And in my opinion, that is the thrill of Christmas, right? That, that is the thrill of this particular season, at least the gift-giving part of it. You know, the ironic thing about that we is I have absolutely no idea where it is anymore. You know, we played it a few weeks. We played the one game that was good for it, that sports game. And now it either sits in a garage or, or probably more likely it sits in a landfill somewhere where 99.9% .9 of the other gifts I've received in life sit. None of the ones that you have given me, obviously, but some of the other gifts that I have given. The reality is things rarely live up to the expectation, to the promise that we have for them. For me, so much the thrill of Christmas is it's, it's found in the expectation, it's found in the anticipation, it's found in the waiting. Well, the reason I share that with you is because today we're going to look at a man who spent a large chunk of his life waiting for something. But this is actually one of those rare cases where getting what he wanted was even better than waiting for it. And as always, we're going to see some lessons that come out of this for you and me. 
The passage we're looking at today, the story that I read just a little bit ago, it, it takes place about 40 days following the birth of Jesus. It takes place about 40 days following the very first Christmas. And uh, just so in case you don't know this, and I wouldn't imagine many of you would, the birth of a child for a typical Jewish family, it was a really big event. Now, it's a big event in our day and age, obviously, too. But what I mean by that is in a typical Jewish family, the birth of a child actually triggered a series of rules and a series of rituals and regulations that they had to fulfill. It actually triggered a series of laws that God himself had set down that a family had to carry out. And the one that's most relevant to our story today is a law that actually concerned the firstborn sons of a family. Uh, so those of you who know your Bibles, you know that back in the book of Exodus, when God set the Israelites free from the slavery that they encountered in Egypt, the way that he did that is he sent this angel actually to this earth to kill the firstborn sons of the Egyptian families. But in that, he spared the firstborn sons of Jewish families. Well, right after that incident, in Exodus chapter 13, God put forth a law. And the law said that from that day forward, whenever a family had their first son, which by the way is what Jesus was, he was the firstborn son of his family, whenever a family had their first son, soon after the birth of that child, they had to participate in a ceremony where they would dedicate their son to God. And this was a way to remember all that God had done for them. So following the, the birth of a firstborn son in good Jewish families, they would, they would participate in this ceremony. And for some families who wanted to go above and beyond, this was not required, but for some families who wanted to go above and beyond, they would actually take a trip to the, to the temple in Jerusalem in order to participate in this particular ceremony. And if you're paying attention as I read earlier, you will see that's exactly what Mary and Joseph are doing at the beginning of this passage. They're traveling from Bethlehem where Jesus was born, where we left him last week. They're traveling from Bethlehem to Jerusalem in order to dedicate Jesus in the temple. And it's when they get to the temple, that's what really sets up the main event of this particular story. And it introduces us to this person that we're really going to focus most of our time on here today. And we're introduced to this person in verse 25, starting in verse 25 of this passage. So look with me again there. It says, Now there is a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And so here in these couple of verses, here we're introduced to what is probably, I think, one of the most forgotten individuals in this whole Christmas season. And that is this man by the name of Simeon. I would imagine probably for many of you in this room, you had never even heard of Simeon before until about 10 minutes ago when I read this passage for the first time. And in the stories that we tell at this particular time of year... Simeon doesn't really get mentioned all that much. And I myself am partly to blame for that. I have never given a sermon on Simeon before. And until this past week, honestly, I hadn't even given Simeon all that much thought. But as I have kind of gotten to know him over the course of the week to prepare for this message, I've realized that of all the individuals in and around the birth of Jesus, I probably identify with Simeon the most. And I don't think that's by accident. I think from the place in history in which we sit right now, we are really meant to identify with Simeon because he is a lot like us. So who exactly is this Simeon? Well, probably one of the reasons why he doesn't get talked about that much is because we honestly don't know all that much about him. The only place he's mentioned in the Bible is in these 12 or 13 verses right here. 
And as you look at these 12 or 13 verses, there are only about three things that we can say about him with any degree of certainty. And you can write these down if you want. The, the first thing that we know about Simeon is this, and, and this we actually don't even know for certain. We just sort of get the impression. But the impression we get from this passage is that Simeon was probably towards the older end of life, okay? He was probably towards the older end of his life. Really, the impression that we get in this passage is that he, he is very at or near the end of his life. Uh, a lot of scholars think he might be in his late 70s, his 80s, his 90s. He may be a little bit younger than that, only because people didn't live as long in that time period. But he is near the older end of his life. That's the impression we get. That's the first thing. Second thing that we know from this passage is we know that Simeon was a very faithful follower of God. In verse 25 of this passage, it says that he is righteous and he is devout. And those are sort of two buzzwords at this time to refer to. This is one of the few people in Israel at this time who did what God wanted him to do. So he was a faithful follower of God. And then the third thing that we know, and this is the most important for our discussion today, is that Simeon had been promised something by God. God himself had promised Simeon something. Uh, you see in verse 25, you see sort of an interesting phrase that may have caught your eye. The, the phrase is the consolation of Israel. It says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now, what exactly does that phrase mean? Well, that phrase goes back to something that we've talked about a lot in this series, and that is the dark, difficult circumstances that surrounded the nation of Israel at the time of Jesus. I mentioned it last week. It's the fact that Israel at the time of Jesus was not their own nation. They were a part of the evil, wicked Roman Empire, an empire that, in their opinion, stood against everything that God saw important, everything that God valued. And so it was a very dark time for them. But despite this darkness, there was a hope that the Jewish people lived with. And that's what that phrase, consolation of Israel, refers to. That phrase actually is borrowed from some themes in the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, 750 years before the time of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah predicts that following a time of destruction that will come upon Israel because of their sin, which is what the Israelites are experiencing at the time of Jesus, following this time of destruction, there is going to come a time of restoration. Israel will be restored, the prophets say, to their former glory. And the word that Isaiah specifically uses in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, is he uses the word comfort. He says Israel is going to be comforted following their destruction. And that's what the phrase consolation of Israel means. What does it mean to console someone? It means to comfort them. And so we're told here what Simeon was waiting for is he is waiting for this restoration of Israel. He is waiting for this day when Israel will be restored to its former glory. And among most Jewish people in the first century, it was believed that this restoration, this consolation, it would come through one single individual. And that was the Messiah. That was this anointed one that the Jewish people believed that God would send to this earth and he would be king of the Jewish people and he would be the one who would bring deliverance. He would be the one who would bring restoration to Israel. Well, what we're told in this passage is sometime earlier in his life, we don't know when, but sometime earlier in his life, Simeon had been promised something by God. And what Simeon had been promised is that before he died, he would get the chance to see that Messiah. And that's what you see here in verse 26. It says it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. So sometime earlier in his life, God made it clear to Simeon, Simeon, before you breathe your last breath on this earth, you are going to see my anointed one. You're going to see the deliverer of the Jewish people. 
And we really get the impression, you guys, that from that point, from the point that that promise was made to Simeon, that that's really what Simeon's whole life became about. His whole life became about waiting for that day that God had promised, waiting to get a glimpse of the Messiah, waiting to get a glimpse of the one who would deliver the Jewish people. In other words, Simeon's whole life became about waiting for Jesus. His whole life became about longing for Jesus. And I don't know about you, but but there there is something that really draws me to that. There's something that really stands out to me about that. You know, as I said in this passage, Simeon is, is probably towards the, the older end of things in life. He's probably, in, as I said, in his late 70s, 80s, 90s, something like that. And, and that reminds me of something that I really love about this church. And I'm serious when I say this. One of the things I really love about this church is that we're not just a bunch of younger people here. Okay, truly. I mean, there are some churches out there where, where I would be the oldest person at that church. That is not the case here. And I love that. I love that we have people of all different ages here. And for those of you who may be a a little bit more towards the older end of things, and I will leave it to you to determine whether or not this describes you, because I'm not going to do that here. But those of you who may be a little bit towards the older end of things, I want to say something to you. And I've never said this to you before, and honestly, I regret it because I should have. But what I want to say to you is this. We need you at this church. Okay, we need you at this church. Please, please, please do not leave and go to another church. We need you here. We are better for the fact that you are here. And we're better for the fact that you are here for a number of different reasons, but one of the reasons that we are better for the fact that you are here is because you have a wisdom, you have a perspective that truly only comes with age. And you have an awareness that you can give us of what really matters in this life, something that is sometimes lost on those who might be a little bit younger. Uh, it reminds me of a, a famous quote that some of you may have come across before. It's online, it's usually attributed to Winston Churchill, though I found in my research he, he probably didn't really say it, but the quote is very true nonetheless. The quote is this, someone once said, when you're 20, you care what everyone thinks, when you're 40, you stop caring what everyone thinks, and when you're 60, you realize that no one was ever thinking about you in the first place. <laughs> And isn't that true, right? You know, in your 20s and your 30s and your 40s, there's such a pressure that we feel to build a name for ourselves and build our image and our self-worth and build our kingdom and that sort of thing. We talked about that last week. But, but, But one of the things that I think age gives you is you realize that that stuff just doesn't matter anymore. And there are some of you, you are like Simeon here. You realize that the most important thing in this life is not making a name for yourself. You realize that the most important thing in your life is God. It's Jesus, and it's waiting for a move of God, and it's waiting for a move of Jesus here on this earth. And you need to remind us of that. You need to remind us that that's what's most important. Because the reality is, that's what we need right now. That's what we need more than ever. You know, I, I hate to be a, a Debbie Downer this week, and especially a week and a half before Christmas, but I'm not about to say anything that you guys don't already know. But, but one of the things I see in the world right now, brothers and sisters, is there, is there is just a darkness in this world right now. Things are just not right right now. There, there is just a darkness that has settled over our world. You know, it amazes me, this past week, uh, six people lost their lives in a supermarket in New Jersey because of another one of those mass shootings. 
But what amazes me the most is right now is the first time some of you are hearing about that. And the reason why is because these things have become so commonplace these days that they barely even get a mention anymore on the nightly news. And if that is not a sign of our day and age, I don't know what is. That, that when the killing, when the murder of, of six people barely gets a mention because we're so used to it nowadays. I, I mean, things are just not right right now. And, and I do think a lot of people see that and they agree with that. But what people don't agree on is they don't agree on how to fix what's going on in our world right now. Now, people have solutions that they're posing, right? Next year is an election year, as many of you know, and all the people running for president, they all are telling us that they know how to solve what's going on in the world right now, but none of them can agree on what the solution is. And the reality is that none of them will be able to solve what's going on in the world right now. Because the reality is that no one on this earth can You know, I I am not a prophet, you guys, but I just get the sense that we have sort of hit a turning point in the history of the world. I sort of get the sense that we have sort of passed the point of no return. And what I mean by that is I mean, I, I just get the feeling that we are starting to enter into what the Bible refers to as sort of the last days of the last days. Now, we may still have a thousand years on this earth, don't mistake me. But, but we've sort of turned a corner into that time. And the reason I say that is because, you know, when you look at the passages that describe what's going to happen right before the end of the world, it's hard to say that it doesn't describe our time right now. There's a passage in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that it says kind of, you know, right before Jesus comes, it says that evil is going to increase. And it says that people are going to be lovers of themselves and they're going to be lovers of money and they're going to be greedy and ungrateful and unholy. And it says children are going to disobey their parents even. And it says that people are going to love what is evil and they're going to hate what is good. And I don't know about you, that just seems to describe what's going on right now. And the Bible makes it clear that when we sort of enter into that time, there is only one thing that is fully and finally going to fix the world, and that is the return of Jesus. That's when Jesus returns to this earth and sets up his kingdom, sets up a throne here on this earth. But until that happens, things are going to get difficult and things are going to get even darker. And so that's why, as I said earlier, that's why we are like Simeon. Because we too are waiting for Jesus. Simeon was waiting for Jesus' first coming. We're waiting for Jesus' second coming. Simeon was waiting for the consolation, for the restoration of Israel. We in many ways are waiting for the consolation, for the restoration of the entire world, for the consolation, for the restoration of all mankind. We are like Simeon because we realize that there is only one thing that can bring light to this world, and that is Jesus Christ. But that raises a question, doesn't it? And the question that it raises is, okay, so why is Jesus taking so long? Right? Why is Jesus taking so long? Jesus knows the evil that's in this world. He sees the darkness that's in this world. But why doesn't he just come to this earth and fix it all right now? Why is he taking so long? Well, the Bible actually has an answer for that. And it's hinted at in our passage. Pick it up in verse 29 of this passage. So Mary and Joseph, they take Jesus into the temple. And when Jesus gets in the temple, we're told that Simeon is is told by the Holy Spirit, this is your moment. Jesus is in the temple. You need to go see him. So he heads to the temple. And when he gets to the temple, he sees Jesus. And we're told that he takes Jesus in his arms. He takes the Savior in his arms. And this is the moment that he has been waiting his whole life for. And he is so overjoyed that he breaks into a hymn of praise to God. Verse 29. 
It says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. And so here Simeon launches into a prayer of thanksgiving to God. And, and what stands out to me most about this prayer of thanksgiving is that as Simeon thanks God, he doesn't just thank God that God fulfilled a personal promise that he made to him. He doesn't just thank God that God fulfilled a promise that he made to the nation of Israel. Israel. But he also thanks God that in Jesus, God fulfilled a promise that he made to the entire world. Again, verse 30 of this passage, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And that word Gentiles, in case you don't know, is a word that just refers to those who are not Jewish. And what Simeon is picking up on here is something that honestly a lot of Jewish people at the time of Jesus forgot. And that was the fact that God doesn't just love the Jewish people. It's that although the Jewish people are the chosen people, God doesn't only love the Jewish people. He loves all the nation. He loves all mankind. And what Simeon realizes then is he realizes that Jesus was not just sent to be a savior of one particular nation, but Jesus was sent to be the savior of the entire world. And that anybody who puts their faith in Jesus would be able to have eternal life. And you guys, that's the reason. That's the reason. This is important, so don't miss this. Why doesn't God just send Jesus to this earth now? Why does God tolerate the darkness and the evil that we see in the world when in one fell swoop he could end it all right now? You know the reason why? It's because God is still in the business of loving people. It's because God is still in the business of saving people. And God is deliberately withholding the return of his son to give people on this earth as much opportunity as possible to respond to him, to say yes to him. This is the point that Peter makes in 2 Peter 3, 9. Here Peter is talking to a group of people who 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus are starting to complain. Why isn't Jesus returning? Why, why is he tolerating all that's going on? You know, why, why is he being slow about his promise to return? And this is what Peter says. He says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, meaning his promise to return, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. You see, God knows that the second Jesus comes to this earth, that's it. That's it for the people on this earth. They have no more opportunity to believe in Jesus. And so God is deliberately withholding the return of his son to give people on this earth as much opportunity to believe in him because he loves them. Now, of course, not everybody is going to accept Jesus. And God knows that, and we know that, and Simeon knows that. Look at me at verse 33. After Simeon gives this thanksgiving to God, he says something interesting to Mary. Verse 33, it says, The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So here Simeon says something a little bit interesting, right? A little bit cryptic. He talks about the falling and rising of many, a sign that will be spoken against. What's going on here? Well, what Simeon is saying here is what we already know. And that is that not everybody will accept Jesus. That is, not everybody will like Jesus. Even Mary, Simeon says, is going to struggle at times with Jesus. Why? Because Simeon says, it's because Jesus reveals the hearts of people. And people don't always want their hearts revealed. It's what we said last week, right? That people love darkness rather than the light. 
So not everybody's going to say yes to Jesus, but still God wants to give as many opportunities as possible. And that's where you and I come in. That's where we get inserted into this story. Here's the question that comes out of this passage and it's going to guide the, the rest of our time together. The question is this. Who is God calling you to give the gift of Jesus to this Christmas? Who is God calling you to give the gift of Jesus to this Christmas? There's a story that's told, and it's a famous story, and I'm sure I've told it to you before, but it makes the point really well, so I'm going to share it again. And it's a made-up story, but the story goes like this. It's, It's a story of what happens right after Jesus ascends into heaven after his death and resurrection, his ministry on this earth. And the story goes that when Jesus gets to heaven, you know, he sits in his throne on the right hand side of the Father, and we're told that an angel comes up to Jesus. And the angel says to Jesus, he says, wow, you must really love the people on this earth. I mean, you died for them. And Jesus says, yes, I do love them. And so the angel says, he says, well, how, how, what's your plan to, to get people to know how much you love them and what you did for them? How are people going to know? And Jesus says, well, the way I did it is this. I've left 120 followers on this earth. And I've given them the mission of telling other people about me. And then those people are given the mission of telling other about me and so on and so forth until eventually the whole world will know what I've done for them. And this angel thinks about that and he says, but, but Jesus, he says, what if they don't do that? What if your followers don't do that or if one generation down the line doesn't do that? How, how are people gonna know about you then? Jesus, what, what's your backup plan? What's your backup plan in that situation? And Jesus looks at the angel and he says, I don't have any backup plan. They're it. We're it. There is one method and one method only by which God gets the message of salvation and Jesus out there. It's through us. It's through you and me. And as I've said several times before, that's why God leaves us on this earth. That's why he leaves us in this darkness because there are people he loves and there are people he wants to reach. He wants to reach and he, we are the people that he wants to use to do that. And brothers and sisters, as we have said several times before, this season we are in right now, this is the best time for that. The next 10 days, you guys, the next 10 days, let me tell you something about the next 10 days. It's not just the biggest shopping days of the year, okay? The next 10 days is the most open anybody you will know, you know, will be all year to hearing about Jesus. It is. The next 10 days is the most open anybody you know will be all year to saying yes to an invitation to church. There is a crucial window that we are in right now to share the message of Jesus with others. And that's why we gave you this invitation this week. There are two of them floating out there. That's why we gave this to you. Just so you know, this is not for yourself. This is not to hang on your refrigerator so you know our service times over the next week or so, okay? If you want to know our service times, go online, you can print it out, and you can hang that on your refrigerator. We give this to you because we know that there is someone in your life. There is someone in your life that God is deliberately withholding the return of Jesus for. Think about that for a second. There is someone in your life that God is deliberately withholding the return of Jesus for because he wants that person to know him. And you are the person that he has put in their life to facilitate that connection. So who is God calling you to give the gift of Jesus to this Christmas? And I know, you guys, I know this is where some of us get uncomfortable, right? 
Some of you are going, oh no, it's the evangelism talk. I can't stand the evangelism talk. And I get that. It's probably the least favorite thing of many people in the Christian faith. And I know one of the reasons for it. It's rejection, right? We fear that people are going to say no, that people are going to reject us. And they probably will say no to us. But I hope as you see what Simeon says in this passage, that has nothing to do with us. And that has everything to do with them. You know, I was thinking this past week, just to give you an insight into my job. I know that there are some weekends I stand up here, and this is probably going to be one of them, where you don't like what it is that I say. And I know that because some of you tell me that you don't like what, you, what I say. You come out, I didn't really like what you said last week, and I didn't really like what you said a couple of weeks ago. I, I, had one, I had one guy at this church come up to me, and he said, Chris, I didn't really like you for the first four months that we attended here. And you know what I say to that? Feelings mutual. I still don't like you. No, I'm just kidding. No, that's not true. That's not true. That's not true. No, no, no. Listen, I don't like what I say up here all the time, okay? But the gauge is not whether or not we like it. The gauge is whether or not it's the truth. People don't always like the truth, but they still need it. People don't always like Jesus, but they still need him. I, I, estimate, I estimate that if I ask 10 people to come to church for our Christmas Eve services, I estimate that nine are going to say no, because nine probably will. So why do I still do it? Because the one who says yes is worth the nine who say no. Because then I get to see God work in their life, and there's nothing like that. It reminds me of a video I came across not too long ago. There was a video of a young man, he's probably 13, 14, 15, and he had severe color blindness his whole life. Uh, could only see kind of grays or, or muted colors. Well, one day he got a special pair of glasses that helps colorblind people see color for the first time. And there was a video that was taken of him trying on these glasses for the first time. And I want you to turn your eyes to the screen because it's a pretty powerful video. Go ahead and look at it. Okay, well, they're all yours. Okay, they're all yours. Let's see what it, see what it does. <laughs> so what do you think then? Look, people. He cool? That's awesome. Hey, come here. Come here, dude. Oh, I'm so happy for you. Oh. Mom, you better get in there too. That is so awesome. I told you it's gonna be a little emotional. <laughs> Hey, now that just tells you how beautiful the world you have. God and I get to see it for the first time, right? So be happy, be appreciative of it, right? <laughs> that is so cool. Don't you love it? Yeah. Don't you love how he goes to the periodic table of elements? Wouldn't all of you do that if you could see color for the first time? No, but that's why we do what we do. Because when someone says yes to Jesus, it's like, it's like seeing color when their whole life has been black and white. And that's what makes it worth it. And I just don't want you to underestimate the power that a simple invitation can have. There's a woman at our church, her name is Debbie, and Debbie's been attending a church for years. And so that means that every year for Christmas and Easter, she's gotten these invitations. And every year she's done the same exact thing with them. She put them in the, in the mailbox of one of her neighbors. And every year her neighbor did the same exact thing with this. He threw it away. He tossed it. He had no need for church. He had no need for this. And so he threw it away. Well, a couple of years ago, uh, this, this neighbor, he got in a pretty serious car accident. And he was okay and his family was okay. But, but literally, he says the second he got out of the car, he said the first thought on his mind was, 
I need to go to church. We need to go to church. And so his mind went back to all these invitations that he had thrown away over the years. And so he started coming to Friends Church. And now a couple of years later, Jesus is in his life. He and his family were part of a rooted group that I'd led a few years ago. He, um, yeah, you can clap, definitely. His daughter goes to a Christian college now. He's in a small group that I'm in, all because of an invitation that went rejected for years. You just don't have any idea the power that this can have in someone's life. And may I remind you, this is what Christmas is all about. I asked our staff this past week, I asked them to turn in some empty boxes to kind of simulate what, what it looks like in some houses on Christmas morning. And this is what my house is gonna look like on Christmas morning. And you know what? These boxes are full of some fun stuff. And, and my kids, if they got stuff like this, they would have fun with it. And it would cause some excitement for a few days or something like that. But what's gonna happen to most of the stuff that was in these boxes? The same thing that's gonna happen to these boxes. They're gonna be thrown away, right? And that's probably what's gonna happen to most of the gifts that we give people this year. Not this. This has the potential to change someone's life forever. The world needs Jesus, you guys. We need Jesus. And those out there, even if they don't realize it, they need Jesus as well. So who is God calling you to give the gift of Jesus to this Christmas?